1: Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sergeant, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. Goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards. Over twelve hundred games. I want again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five, High Five Casino, Casino. Win at High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino.
2: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
1: You know you've got a comeback in you. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.
2: Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, and we've got an awesome guest on this week. It's a person who uh, I traded some Twitter DMs with. And we uh, got him on the show. It's Benny Horowitz, the drummer of Gaslight Anthem, as well as a hardcore band called Bottom Feeder. And he also is a guest host on a, another awesome podcast that you should check out if you haven't listened to already called Going Off Track with uh, Jonah Bayer and some other of his friends. And, um, yeah, Benny's just a good guy. And I I I'd never met him before, as you will probably hear in our conversation. And I just knew that we would have a ton of stuff to talk about, and we absolutely did, and we probably could have gone on for another hour, but I didn't want to, to, I was about to say torture him, but you know, it's not torture, hopefully, talking to me, but anyways, let's get some house cleaning and business out of the way, and then we will uh, dive into the interview. So, Last week's show was, was pretty awesome in the sense of a lot of you checked it out, and uh, I appreciate that. It seems like every time Buddy comes on my show, uh, there's a nice little uptick in listenership, which is uh, it's always appreciated. But, hey, why don't you stay for the rest of these shows, huh? You know, come along. Come along for the journey. Hear me talk to some other people about some really compelling stuff. So um, I appreciate all of you who also wrote in last week to me. In regards to the anxiety I was feeling about work and how I could kind of manage that sort of stuff, and uh, yeah, some of you sent through some really, really interesting and engaging things. Um, I tend to do a little—I um, uh, w- I would say—meditation in the mornings. Um, I go to the gym every morning. I'm insane at like 5 a.m. <laughs> I'm there doing you know cardio, weightlifting, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I do like a little five-minute sort of guided meditation thing, and um, that's been helping a lot recently. But some of you sent through some incredible ideas. And I appreciate you reaching out because, uh, after all, that's what this this vehicle is. Podcasts are meant to connect people. And, um, yeah, for those of you that sent some stuff my way, I really appreciate that. And uh, I also uh, had a nice little time with my son. He turned five years old recently. And the reason I bring him up and the birthday that he just had was the fact that um, it, it's just crazy. There's nothing more... Um, <laughs> I guess life altering than the idea of watching your life as you get older via your child where it's like, Oh wow, they're five. I remember when they were born five years ago and uh, I don't necessarily feel all that different, but it is such a, a mile marker in your own life. That's like, okay, yes, this is the passing sands of the uh, time that we all feel. And like I said, kids are just a really interesting reflection on it. And it's also really interesting too, because I find that a lot of people that are involved in this weird subculture um, tend to be really, really engaged parents, partially just because, you know, they act like kids themselves already. So it's not a huge stretch of the imagination for, you know, people such as myself and some of my friends and other people who I consider acquaintances. Uh, to be really uh, just into being a kid all over again, you know, whether it's like going to parks or whether it's like watching kids' movies. Like, I just, you know, I I, even though I had an amazing upbringing, the idea of like my parents playing with me in the sense of like, oh, getting super into Star Wars or anything like that, um, I don't think was as common. And I just find it really interesting that it seems to me that a lot of people who are involved in this, this independent music culture I don't know, maybe you're just more open to it, but it's just an inter- interesting idea that I want to kind of put that out there where, um, you know, I, I'm, maybe you're nowhere near having a child, and I totally get that. I didn't have my first kid until I was 30, and I'm only having one child, and that's it. <laughs> but uh, that's just an interesting prism to view the world in and view how your relationship with your parents are. And I don't know, I could go on and on, but uh, I'll probably save that for a versation episode uh, next month, which next month is the four-year anniversary of this show. And I've got a very special guest coming on later in that month. Uh, I've already recorded the interview and it was a doozy. So I'll uh, tease you there, right? Anyways, um, so yeah, that's all. But Benny, like I said, really, really good dude. Uh, Just had a kid himself recently and uh was really reflective in this conversation uh really spoke about a lot of things that i could tell he was passionate about and i just love being able to kind of you know not only take the trip down memory lane but um yeah in any event i wanted to uh make sure that you understood what benny was talking about and where he comes from uh because i think it's really really important to obviously who he is the music that he plays all that other stuff so anyways here's my conversation with benny and i will speak to you after we are done I just remember um, once uh, once Fifty Nine Sound came out, and I was aware. I mean, I I previously purchased uh, Sink or Swim and liked the band, but it was a uh, I was incredibly excited that it was like, hey, I heard Benny's like a punk and hardcore kid. Like I knew that you were you know not just this this random dude playing drums for um, you know uh, an alternative rock band, as it were. Right. Um, And I just I was excited because I was like, oh, this this band is the trajectory is going to be quite large. Like you guys are going to be, you know, up there. At least that's what I was feeling. Um, So I I know I realize it's kind of a, a bigger question to lead off with. But was it strange for you kind of like receiving attention from playing in a band because obviously and everything that you had done prior to that was just on the very, you know, DIY basement show level. Um, was it weird as the ascendancy started to happen where it's like, Oh, major labels and like, Oh my gosh, we're playing shows in front of a lot of people. And like, this was, I mean, it's cool obviously, but was it a, uh, was a weird transition period for you?
3: Well, yeah. And like you said, it's a pretty broad question. Cause even like the ascendancy from like nowhere, to people coming to our shows to major labels, those are like huge steps, you know what I mean? Um, And most of which I was comfortable with because in all honesty, like all I wanted to do was be a full-time musician, you know? Um, That was my, that was my goal. And like, it was my goal from a pretty young age so when things started to happen for Gaslight, as much as I was, like, super excited, I can't say I was surprised because I'd been, like, scratching and clawing for fucking people to <laughs> pay attention to my bands and come to my shows and buy a T-shirt and things like that for many, many years prior to that, you know?
2: Right.
3: So so I can't say I was, like, I was it was almost like the thing that surprised me was I had been an independent, you know, show promoter for years and I played in so many bands and I'd done a bunch of tours prior to Gaslight that I had like a pretty strong network of people um, to reach out to and to kind of, you know, use as a boost to try and get a new band going, you know? And the thing that was different about Gaslight was like, I feel like before Gaslight, any band that would bring to people would be like, Oh, Benny's got a new band. Like, let's help him out. You know? Um, and when it came to Gaslight, it was like people going, Oh shit. Like Benny's in like a proper good band now. Like, right. And it came less from a, from a point, you know, and it's something I've even learned about the business in general along the way. It came less of a point from, like, oh, let's, like, hook this guy up who's hooked us up and more from a point, like, oh, wow, like, this is good and I run a label, I do this, I do this, like, you know, this is good for me, too, to to promote this and this is that. And, like, you know, it's something I, through the years, I mean, I'm sure we'll we'll tap into this somewhere along the course of the conversation, but where, you know... <laughs> that thing where like art and friendship and commerce kind of meet in this weird, bizarre middle in the music industry. And I definitely found that, you know, like, um, if you have something people like and people think they can sell, they're a lot more willing to help you. Right. (laughs) You know, that's just like, the nature of it, you
2: know? Yeah. So that's, that, that's interesting. Cause I mean, I think that's a good point to make where it's like you, once you're put in a position where even if it's like a small level of notoriety, it's like people uh, start to want things from you that you would never have been able to give them in the first place. Like, even if it's like, Hey, can you put me on like your local headlining show? And you're like, but you never even talked to me before. Like I don't even know you. (laughs) And it's, yeah, you start to have those, um, you you have to calculate whether that person's intentions are, are, are good or they simply are just trying to use you.
3: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, I was pretty surrounded by like a group of people who had watched me sort of trudge for a long time. And I, you know, through all those years, I built a lot of good relationships and I didn't have a lot of burned bridges or anything like that. So I don't, don't, you know, it happened a couple times and it happened in New Brunswick where I'd get some attitude from somewhere. But I, I never got that shit that hard, in all honesty. Like this idea that like Gaslight Anthem went to California, made a record and I come home and people are like, you know, pulling a bunch of MC Hammer shit when I'm home, like, right. hit, you know, hitting me up for fucking dough and stuff like that. That wasn't really the case, you know. Like, my boys are like pretty stand up dudes and aren't going to start trudging around asking for money unless it's like <laughs> something crazy. Right. Um, so and luckily, I'm still mostly surrounded by the same people I was, you know, then. And and I I didn't really have that as much. Um, it happened a couple times and. And a couple of times it happened, you know, I was honestly kind of quick to stand up for myself because I'm a fairly fucking guilt ridden person. There's not much of anything in this world that doesn't make me feel bad in one way or the other. But after spending a few years in the music industry, especially a higher level of the music industry, and saw not only the types of people in it, but the types of people who are capitalizing from it. I was like, if I don't deserve a chunk of this pie, then, like, I don't fucking know who does, you know, because, like, I did my years and I spent the time and I'm watching people who have never set foot in a venue and, you know, people who have, you know, just have no idea what the day to day is like and what the grind is like and people who would, you know, treat somebody who works on guitar is like an asshole because they have no idea how hard their job is, things like that. Um, and you know, that's where I, and and I was joking about it with my wife the other day where like every step of success I've had in music has been met with like half just plagued, riddled white guilt and like half just straight up like Wu Tang clan, just like, east coast moxie where i'm like you know and the same breath i'll be like i feel terrible i don't want any of this you know i feel i feel awful and then i'll think about it for five more minutes i'll go you know what like fuck that shit like right. i'm gonna get mine because these motherfuckers are getting theirs and and you know and then it comes from that place so right i guess i don't really have a defined perspective on it it's 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 moody
2: <laughs> right. Well, I, I mean, I think that's an important nuance to note, because there's definitely that idea. Like, I distinctly remember, like, I played in bands for years. And it was like, we, um, once we started to achieve some level of uh, success, where it's like, you know, oh, my gosh, Carl from Ferret is talking to us and all this other stuff. And then right. the manager started to play. And I, I immediately had the, you know, punk rock attitude of like we don't need a manager and granted this was like you know 2001 2002 when that started to be a little more common but it wasn't as prevalent as it is today but I, i totally empathize with you where it was like you have this feeling of like oh i was i'm raised by this scene and this is why i do this and here are my principles and then on you know then the pendulum swings where it's just like of course we'll play a show for $2000 where the other bands are paid to play like wait wait yeah. hold on what what both of those can live on the same branch it's it's a funny feeling
3: but they're tricky and it is like you said especially coming from this place where you know you're spouting off such a Hardcore ideology on, on everybody about what you're specifically supposed to believe in and supposed to act like. I mean, it's pretty, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's like a horse with blinders on. You know, for a progressive scene, right? it can be pretty fucking constrictive as to as what's acceptable to wear and what's acceptable to be, you know, for a scene that's supposed to be so open. But... Because I came from that place, like, in my estimation, every step of the way of Gaslight getting bigger included compromised principles. Um, And it was actually part of, like, the push and pull in the band from pretty early on because, you know, Gaslight started, you know, we knew something was up with Gaslight pretty early on because, you know, especially Brian and I had been playing in bands for years and years before that really like you know we weren't just people who fell into this we were grinders by the time Gaslight started you know and um you know he definitely was into pushing Gaslight into a bigger realm he didn't see why not um and I was coming from that place of you know mm, very tentative about the, the major scene, very tentative about management agents and things like that, very DIY. And every step of the way, where we hired somebody else, fired somebody else, made a move up to a label, did this, it was like a head fuck for me personally, as far as like the compromise principle aspect of it. Like it was, it was a part of every, every like, um, Step that like Gaslight took like was that feeling that I that I had compromised something
2: right I, I think it's also interesting too because uh, typically the uh, you know drummers of most bands uh, aren't. Uh, kind of the, uh, you know, the business person. It's, you know, she usually it gets thrust upon the singer because they're up front and people want to talk to them or whatever. Um, but it, like you mentioned, the hustle that you had uh, from an early age in regards to like putting together shows in New Jersey and stuff like that, was that always, that was always a side of the industry that you were, and I use the word industry in air quotes, <laughs> but right, right, yeah. the, the side of the industry that you always were kind of interested in or was like putting on shows in your, you know, or younger life, uh, was that just a function of like oh we need a place to play and that sort of stuff or was it the kind of oh wow i can like organize this and put this together and this is cool
3: i think like i mean it definitely started as just an avenue for my own bands to play um and luckily for me like right around the time i started getting into this there was this really rich and vibrant scene in, in not only New Brunswick, which obviously had a, a good scene and places to play, but even, you know, I grew up about, you know, 15 minutes west of New Brunswick and in, in a suburb out in Jersey and just this area in Somerset County and Middlesex County had this like massive scene of kids, skate kids and kids in bands and a bunch of like parents who were cool enough to let people host shows And there was this kind of this little like insular scene going on already where there was sort of between a few towns, you know, six, seven or eight bands that were like kicking around that knew each other and had good relationships. And it wasn't shitty. Um, And luckily for us, I mean, that's, you know, I could sit here talking about hardcore all day because of, you know, how big it was for me in so many ways. But that's a part of it. I've always appreciated And a part of the major music system that I hate is that, you know, that feeling of community that people are working for each other, um, is something I was raised with and something that's lost when it gets bigger, you know? Um, and I hate that. I wish it was a part of it. I truly do. Um, but anyway, like, so, you know, I came up in that and it was definitely at first just, a byproduct of trying to get my band shows. My first band in high school was called Dilemma. It was X Dilemma X.
2: Oh, beautiful. Ironically. I love it. And
3: I was never straight edge, never was. It was just my (laughs) singer who ended up playing lacrosse and falling off the wagon by like his junior year and not being uh too a straight edge right well you know how it works you've been around a long time yeah you know the guys who x'd up and sat on the soapbox usually fell off two years later mm-hmm. and the guys you never knew who were straight edge in the first place probably still are uh,
2: right. you know oh absolutely
3: somehow the way it works yeah but so it was it was a product then and then i did a couple shows I did one in my guitar player's basement where I booked the bands and I have i had always been like a super social kid. I never had a problem meeting people or being in a room of people and like finding something to talk about or like get a laugh going or something like that. It's just something that came kind of easy for me. And when I sort of saw that all shows and doing them was especially this is before the age of fucking contracts and booking agents, especially in punk and hardcore, you know, you're calling people on the phone and you're like, Hey, I got this date at this place, like are you around? And, and it it felt easy to me and not only easy, but fun. And then once I got, you know, some of the specifics worked out with how I'm going to do like venues and how I'm going to do sound, um, then I started to get this really like strong feeling of satisfaction at the end of a show. Like, you know, I'd be standing in the back of a room watching a hundred people freak out to a band that I think is fucking awesome and I know half of them hadn't seen yet and money came in the door and I can pay everyone and I'm like I felt I, I honestly felt like I was doing something important and it felt good to me. I felt like I was contributing to something that I really believed in and, you know, looking back on it in what way or another, I'm not sure, but I was, you know, and I've talked to some kids later in life who were like, yeah, I used to go to those shows. They were awesome. And, um, and that, yeah, means a lot to me. Like, so the, the show thing that, that's really just how it started was, uh, was that, I think I just loved fucking chatting with people.
2: <laughs> right well you, um, you you definitely there's that sense of like you're kind of the the bell of the ball when you are the person putting on the show because like you know I- anybody that knows you is like oh like benny put on that show and the, obviously the bands talk to you and you kind of you know you're always running around doing something and uh obviously that's it's, true it's it is a thankless like i i put on a music festival out here called sound and fury for like uh, three years. And like that, you know, it was a three day festival. It it was hellish because it was so, so stressful, but it's there, that moment that you're talking about where it's like, I'm in the back of the room watching, you know, 2000 kids travel from all over the world to be at this place. You feel that sense of like the community thing that you're talking about, Yeah, but but you, but you know, more often than not, it's definitely kind of like, oh, wow, this is a really thankless (laughs) endeavor. It's not like anyone's going up to you and being like, hey, Benny, thanks for putting on that show. I mean, obviously they do now, you know, retroactively, but um, it is is a weird feeling to kind of have that push and pull of like, this is really cool, but it's also really stressful.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was stressful, definitely. I mean, I remember the days, and it was just me and some of my friends, you know, doing it. But, you know, I was also like, you know, as social of a kid, I was, I was like chubby and not good at sports and like, (laughs) and like kind of always like a little weird, you know, (laughs) like a little out of the pack a little bit. And like, you know, not for nothing, like being in bands and doing that shit when I was young, it made me fucking feel cool. You know, like, (laughs) like the same reason some fucking, you know, shitty lost kid out in L.A. joined the fucking Crips. Like, luckily, I had a better avenue to go down to to harness, like, my feeling of being rejected from the area and place I was around. But, you know, I remember specifically, like, I went to, I can't believe I remember this kid's name, but I went to, like, middle school with a kid named Eric Cuda or something like that was his last name. And the very first show I ever played, my band Dilemma played a three-song set at this guy, Bill Farrington's house. He was in a band called Verse Chorus Verse, which was mostly a Nirvana cover band. And he put on this show in his basement, and it was my band's first show. And we had one original. We played Bro Him by Pennywise, and we played A-Bomb by SNFU. And that was our set. It was this, the, the three songs. And we played our set, then verse, Chorus Verse played for like an hour playing Nirvana covers, and then people were again so fed up they actually asked us to play again. And We played our little three-song set twice at this kid's house. <laughs> and even the first time I ever played a show... And for some reason, I consistently feel like this, even outside of a Gaslight show, like years later, I found myself like outside alone, just kind of like, yeah, this is cool, you know, and like thinking and by myself. I don't know how that always fucking happens. But yeah. Um, And and I remember Eric Cuda's older sister, who was like two or three years older than me. And I, you know, older girls like would never talk to me, especially and like not this like you know, can't hardly wait moment I'm talking about here. But like, um, and she came up and she said, like, the band was cool and talked to me for like a second and went away. And that like just little experience right there was, was really uh, oddly validating for me, I guess, when I was a little kid and, you know, I'm probably 12 years old. We are talking when I joined my first band and I think in some weird way, Playing in bands and music all these years has been partially some like larger search for validation, and I found something to be validated through. You know, um,
4: this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're sitting here; it's like June, and you're like, "Where has the time gone?" And everybody's like, "Oh my gosh, I have no idea. I gotta like accomplish all these other things." Take a moment. Focus on the things that obviously, for one, matter to you, but for two, look back. Be like, what have I done well? What have I done not so well? And maybe I can, you know, ask some friends and family for some help. But where I have always gone to in regards to figuring out what I can do better, therapy. Therapy is an incredible tool at your arsenal, that you can dip into. I've done it for my marriage. I've done it for myself personally. And I'm a huge advocate for what therapy can do for you because it is a third party that's able to look at what you can do to improve your life and be a person to help you along in your journey. And so I think if you were thinking, and visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's BetterHelp.com help, slash Ray.
0: The following is a high five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Welcome
4: to Bird
2: I mean, I think he tapped into a very um, – it's, it's a hard feeling to describe when you do – it's like I, I always reflect on the idea that it's like these these bands that you were watching when you were of a certain age, you know, when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, and then, um, you know, years later, like once we're in our 30s, and then we realize like, dude, I love the Get Up Kids, and I watch the Get Up Kids play so many times. And like Matt Pryor's only like a few years older than me, but it's like right. you feel – you feel that sort of kinship because you're in the same room, you're breathing the same air, that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the feeling that you're talking about is very. Um, it's it. It gives you the it gives you the life skills that are very difficult to replicate in other scenarios. Like, yeah, you could argue, you know, sports and uh, the the team building that happens there. But then, just the sort of life confidence that playing in a band gives you is a weird thing.
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, while well, there's there's a lot of different avenues, right? You know, I mean, I, I come from a really academic family. You know, my father is a doctor in education. My aunt's a doctor in psychology. My uncle's a doctor in physics. Like, I come from this, like, long list of academics. And, you know, through the years, you know, I had it in my head when I was younger that, you know, everything was based on, like, school and learning, and it was based on your retention of these facts and degrees and, and whatever status you can achieve through that because that's you know what was going on in my family. I'm the first one in two generations of my family to not finish college. Um, and, but through the years, I've definitely realized the innumerable, innumerable different aspects of intelligence that exist – And the fact that half the people I know who are like my family are socially, you know, borderline autistic people. Like, you know, as you know, they could write you the most fascinating thing you've ever seen and it could be well-researched and it could be something. But if you saw them in person you'd be too freaked out to even retain this. You'd be too bored or you'd be too put off or something because social intelligence is an entirely different thing. Like, you know, just garnering discipline, the idea that you need to like practice for something that you need to be good for. And you feel the motivation to do that. That's like discipline. That's work intelligence. That's another aspect of things. And like, so I really don't abide anymore. and now, you know I think about it even more that I'm a father, is I don't really subscribe to the idea that, that you need to go this route to, to harness whatever you're given with your intelligence or, or the things. And I happened to find something that tapped into. So I had a natural social intelligence when I was a little kid. I don't know what it was. My mom was really, really like a very chatty person who could talk to anybody and was non judgmental towards people. And maybe I learned it from her, but just that simple skill allowed me like a really big purpose in music because every band needs a guy like that. Every show needs somebody behind it who knows how to do this, you know? And and it really paid a lot of dividends for me through the years, you know. Right. Um, it's yeah. it, it's a big thing.
2: Yeah. Definitely. Well, I can hear. I mean, the way that you're speaking about it is obviously very reverential, and I think that's uh, you know that's why um, so many people hold that experience in high regard. So I totally get that. So the, uh, you mentioned something in there that I, I wanted to pull a string on was the idea that obviously because you weren't pursuing a higher education and you were focused on, you know, playing in bands and that sort of stuff. Um, well I did, I did, I, oh. I definitely dabbed my foot. Okay. Would you say, so did you go to like Rutgers or something like that? Or no,
3: I, I, I didn't have the grades or money to go to Rutgers by that time. Um, but I did like, Convince myself I should be going to school because I hadn't been too successful in anything else. So I did about a year and a half of community college. I have about 30 college credits and I did about half of a audio engineering program at the school of audio engineering. Got it. Um, so it wasn't like I I didn't have the confidence when I was like 18 to tell my parents and people in my family that I wasn't like going to school at all. It would have been a, you know, possibly supported, but pretty unpopular decision, Um, especially since there wasn't anything super specific at the time. And I I had bands, but I didn't have bands that take up nine months a year. You know, I had bands who hopefully I was playing twice a month, you know, (laughs) going on little tours in the summer or something. But, um, so so it was like uh, it was a harder decision to come to than I'm making it sound. Um, as far as abandoning education and pursuing this stuff full time, I uh, I wasn't like head and shoulders into it like right off the bat.
2: Right was the was that around that time that you were obviously like you said playing twice a month? Was that like when the low end theory existed, or was that some yeah other just.
3: Yeah, that was like just just around that time, the early stages of low in theory. Probably before we started touring, I had like a pretty hectic, you know, home life towards the end of high school, and I ended up moving out at 17 into this house with a bunch of guys. But um, the main guy, who's still a very good friend of mine, Evan, was full time at Rutgers School of Engineering when he was there, and. You know, there was some school going on at the time, too. So I uh, I was still involved, but I was just a fuck-up in school. Even though I was a smart enough kid to do it, I just didn't have that discipline or didn't have the attention span to just stay in a classroom setting and be able to, like, really succeed. So I actually had to take Algebra two for the third time to graduate high school. I was actually already living— At this guy's house, you know, out of my mom's place, like going to summer school to graduate high school because I couldn't graduate with my class. Right. So like for someone who comes from literally like my father was the superintendent of the school district I was in when I was a little kid and this was the way I was with education. So right. it, was, it was definitely,
2: <laughs> you were, you were definitely not the, uh, the shining star that they could uh, hang all of your homework in. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, no, I must've I Drove them fucking crazy. I'm sure. You know, right. was that, was that in part of the reason, obviously why you moved out towards your senior year? Because it was, uh, it was so, uh, rough at home from that perspective. No, nah,
3: you know, actually my parents had split, um, when I was like 11, uh, which is one of the things that even led to what we were earlier talking about really getting into music and just alternative scenes, you know, it all kind of happened around the same time. And I didn't see it at the time, what was happening, but now looking in retrospect, it seems pretty tied together. Um, But to my father's credit, he's, he is like from academia, but he's also like a Jewish guy from immigrant parents from the Bronx who went you know to ccny for a public schooling program and was in the peace corps and you know like not your typical like shitty educator um so he understood what was happening with my struggle and when i had found something else he supported it um his whole thing was always just like, I don't really care what you're doing as long as you're like busting your ass in whatever you're doing. So, um, you know, that sentiment got a little less popular towards as my 20s got to like my mid-20s and I had less and less to show for what I was doing. It got a little harder to to justify Um, because I actually didn't quit my full-time job for Gaslight until I was about 27, which, you know, in this world is like ancient, (laughs) you know, it wasn't, wasn't really supposed to happen for me. You know, (laughs) Brian was even older. So.
2: Right. Yeah. You're, you're supposed to do that in your early (laughs) twenties. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you actually start
3: a band and it breaks and you do well, you know, you you typically weren't as old as we were. Um, But that ended up being a real like blessing in disguise because I feel like we were so much more well-prepared and savvy to deal with everything we dealt with at the same time, you know?
2: Yeah. It's, you definitely see that where it's like, if you're, I mean, the same could be said, I know you're a huge NBA fan. So it's like, there's there's always that discussion of like, do kids need to stay at school longer in order to get that experience and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, there is, there's some do. (laughs) Right. Totally. There is a truth to where it's like, because you're older, you don't feel as dumb when you're 25 as you do when you're 20. You don't know you're, sure. dumb when you're 20, but it's that push and pull where it's like, oh, yeah, I, I'm glad that didn't happen when I was 22 because I didn't know how to handle it.
3: Yeah, luckily for me, you know, there's less of a window on music than basketball. Cause right. I do think by 27, you maybe lose, you lose a little of your hops, just a little you bit, you know, you're not crossing over as fast. Yeah. Um, I think in music years that probably happens in like your mid thirties. Uh, I'm actually, I'm like right there. I'm like right where I'm like, you're going to lose. I got <laughs> where, kidding. where I got to like ice down after shows where I'm <laughs> like pretty much a fucking mess. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's about now, I'd say.
2: No, that's that's good. I mean, that's, yeah. Like, as long as you're, there's a general awareness about it. You're like, okay, like, I know how to take care of this.
3: Oh, no, I'm fucked. I have like, I have like a busted rotator cuff. I have two vertebrae in my neck with no padding in between them. I have a knee I just had to drain and it's pretty much all from drums. Right. Um, so. (laughs)
2: was your um it kind of reflect you know uh, stepping back just a little bit but uh, focusing on the low end theory was that kind of was that band your first exposure as far as like a touring perspective is concerned
3: it was yeah um yeah my other bands before that had done little little weekend trips or something but nothing nothing too serious and low end theory is my first band that like put out a demo got hype got picked up signed to labels had tours booked for us, and yeah, that was definitely my first like entrance into uh, into it being like more of a a, a real thing. Right. Um, up until that point, doing the shows was actually like the realist I had been involved in it. Um, and yeah, yeah, and then Low End Theory started it like as a the idea that this could be like a real thing. It definitely. I mean, I actually, I don't know who has it from the line theory, but there is the first tour we went out on. Um, we signed to eulogy records and the old bass player from poison the well, this guy, Alan oh, yeah. book, booked a tour for us, um, which was, you know, looking back on it sketchy at best, but you know, fun as fuck. And we, you know, stumbled upon a few great shows. And I remember the video of, the tour video and i must have been 18 when when we went on that tour and they're interviewing me at the end of the tour asking like how do you feel and this and that and i'm literally on the verge of tears about having to go home like like it had meant so much to me that i was doing that and it had been such an experience that like i think you know at first especially at that time in my life once once I wet my whistle to like to the road and to touring and to booking the shows and to doing this whole thing, man, I was just like, it's just all I wanted to do. Um, yeah, it's That's
2: right. And then that, that was, yeah. I, I, Cause I mean, I definitely remember hearing of, or I mean, I purchased, your music via uh, uh, you know Eulogy because it was basically you just, purchased
3: the Low End Theory.
2: I did. I purchased. Wow. It. Oh, dude, I'm I'm intimately familiar with the eulogy. basically Eulogy from like '99 to like 2004. I just couldn't get enough wow. of that. I mean,
3: so you're a big glass eater guy.
2: Well, okay, I I didn't like basically the band that I dropped off on was uh, you remember that band Red Roses for a Blue Lady? Yeah. Okay. Of course. Dude hated that band. But but then loved, like, I was actually legitimately, once I listened to your EP this morning, just to kind of get myself in the right headspace, I listened to that. You remember that band Forever in a Day? Of course. Okay. Yeah. So I listened to that. And I was like, man, that EP was so bad now. But I listened, <laughs> right. to, I listened to it. I, I listened to it, I think, yeah, today. And I was like, it's so bad now. But I loved it at the time. Sure. But I just, yeah, I love those. Uh, th- those years were prime eulogy years. Because yeah. everybody, everybody paid really attention good. to that label at that time
3: definitely yeah they had some releases that like well was it that you know and then they they had put out the one newfound glory thing yep i think that helped them totally 12, and then, yeah and then they had
2: tribes a, and everything 12 else was, tribes oh, oh yeah. i love 12 tribes Dude, so good so good
3: i still talk to andy corpus from 12 tribes he's on the, occasion the vocalist he was the guitar player the That's really right. tall guy right right um yeah, they were, they were great. They, we actually, that first tour I'm talking about a couple of the shows were with 12 tribes out in the Midwest. Cause nice. you know, that's how it worked. Then you got on a label and basically every band from that label became the booking agents for that label in that town. You, you <laughs> totally. know, that's Kind of how it got done. So.
2: Right. That's incredible.
3: And it, and it was the same for me, like a uh, tons of eulogy bands and tons of, um, you know, even trust Kill, and ferret bands from that time, since those were just my friends.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, those were a lot of like the first big shows I ever did were like those bands. Mm-hmm. Um, actually the, maybe the first hall show I ever did. Um, that, I, I, used to do shows at this place called the Manville Elks lodge, um, which, you know, became a pretty mainstay at the time for punk and hardcore shows. And, uh, One of the first real shows I did at Manville was the first Trustkill tour, which was Puritan. Oh no, Puritan. I booked, it was Harvest, Despair and Brothers Keeper. Amazing. Those three bands were on a package and I booked them with like these Pennsylvania straight edge bands, one called Puritan, who was like hardcore vegan straight edge, like almost militant. Those kids in this band, uh, outcome. And, uh, you know, we played the show. And at the time, you know, when I was doing shows before that, I was going to a place called Pianos Plus on 22 and I was renting a shitty PA and just putting it in my mom's car. Um, and that had gotten me through my first couple shows, but I did one at a firehouse before that, and everyone complained they couldn't hear anything. So I knew I had to step up my sound game. And the only people I knew who booked sound were uh, Anthony and Kenny from E-Town Concrete. Um, Nice. And, like, so they came and they did the show, but during the set for Puritan, the guy, you know, basically gets up and he goes, Hey, we're Puritan, and just smashes a mic on the ground and it bursts into pieces. And then somehow through the course of a show, he lost two mics. And I made no money on this show. This hall was four or $500 for me to rent every time. And I was already in bad shape with that. Cause we didn't have a good door. And right when I'm settling up, we're about to clean up, you know, Anthony from E-Town who's a pretty scary dude. <laughs> um, at the time he was about my age. He was like not much older, maybe 16, but he was already a fucking truck. Like the kid was huge and they were like yeah like you know you gotta hit us for those mics and i'm like ah dude like i'm tapped like i don't got shit i'm like it's not really on me anyway blah 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 and before i know it like they're like no you're getting us <laughs> like i was getting right. kind <laughs> of yeah. you know and and i'm not like you know especially at that time there was no way I was actively getting into a confrontation one-on-one like that so (laughs) um yeah I remember I walked down the road to like the quick check and pulled out like the 40 remaining dollars I had in my account and and gave it to them and then found a new sound guy after that but right you're like i "I
2: can't have so much stress on all the different levels
3: (laughs) yeah yeah and then luckily for me and it ended up being a big part of the shows i found john hiltz um who was the drummer in born against and kind of a local awesome punk rock dude who had a great sound system and worked for like a pro sound company and he uh you know, I think because I was so young and I was doing something DIY, he like kind of took a liking to me early on, and and always did sound for my shows, and was always cool about money and loose, and um, even to the point where this Elks Lodge I was at uh, tried to get me out of there at a certain point because they were starting to hate the shows and made me do contracts, but I wasn't 18 yet. And this guy would sign the contracts for me and take all of the, you know, all of the uh, liability for the show and stuff like that. Really, you know, in every step of the way, like with all this shit, there is like about, you know, 10 people helping me, which which is great. But it's cool. I mean, and, you know, what's funny now is like I tell sometimes the way I used to book shows felt so normal to me. I had this this I had this notebook that I had all my numbers in. It was like my number notebook, and you know, pages after pages of different contacts of guys and bands and labels, and you know, and I had a pager, and I would get, I would tell people to beat me, and I would get a page. And this is when long distance calling was a real pain in the ass, you know, like before cell phones, when long distance calling cost a lot of money, and my friend Evan. Was making dialers in those days the pocket dialers that you could rip off payphones with? Have you ever seen those?
2: I know exactly what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: So you know he would. They were like those Radio Shack pocket organizers that you know mocked the noise of change going down, going down a payphone. I'm explaining this for the sake of anyone like yeah. under 30 years old who's <laughs> listening to this. Totally. Because um, I know I'm dating the fuck out of myself. even telling tell him the story, but. Um, and you know, so I would get these beeps and I'd get like six and I would either walk or I'd have a friend like drive me to a payphone with my notebook and answer my beeps (laughs) and use this dialer, you know, and I'm calling to like California, I'm calling to the Midwest. So, you know, they're like, please enter $3 and 75 cents. And I'm sitting there with this little pocket organizer going like, (laughs) You know, it takes like fucking fifteen minutes for each call. Um, yeah, and it was like, you know, and then, you know, beyond that, like actually getting it together, you know, no map quest, you know, like a band is coming on tour, they have to call you two days before, get you on the phone and find out what the best way to get to the next venue is and actually, you know, get directions and give directions and the day of a show my mom would sit by the phone at our apartment you know fielding calls to give people directions to the Mandel elks lodge and shit like this and <laughs> like you know it feels like i'm so like nostalgic towards it you know because i know like people don't know even though doing what people are doing right now is so much easier and it probably creates so much more shows and makes it easier for people and it's really a positive thing but since I'm an old man, I'm like nostalgic for that, for how, <laughs> for how difficult it was. You know the, the I trudged three
2: miles in right. the
3: snow to book your shows, <laughs> and you guys have it easy. You don't even have to fly or anymore. Blah blah blah.
2: Right. You just put you up know? a Facebook invite and you
3: get
4: everybody to the yeah. show. Right. Which right.
3: is awesome. You know, I try. I try not to be the fucking grumpy old man like that. Who's like, oh, my way was better because I had to do more. It's just it's just not true. You right. know it's just it's, all,
2: just it's just different. It's just different It's iterations. Just different. That's right. it. There's chal- there's challenges of booking shows these days versus what they were and yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from. High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. dot com.
0: um when did uh when when obviously uh gaslight started to
2: become obviously not only the main focus but started to become like you know you're living and you were getting you know touring 10 months out of the year when did it kind of feel um real for you where it was like oh wow like i I, I am at this avenue that I've been you know pushing myself for for quite some time. Um, it doesn't have to be that sort of like you know parting the skies moment, but like when did it feel? Was it like on the fifty nine sound cycle, or was it like you know before you guys signed to a major? Like when did it feel real for you?
3: Um, I don't know. I guess you know somewhere around fifty nine sound. Yeah, it's it's so hard to say. It's a really odd thing, you know. And and this isn't talking shit because the other guys in Gaslight would say the same thing. We are, like, one of the least, like, sentimental bands you'll ever meet. Um, you know, like, there's not a lot of time for, like, rejoicing in Gaslight. Like, if something good happened, it was like, yo, that's cool. All right, like, what's next? Like, what are we doing? Or if something bad happened you weren't really allowed to complain. It was kind of this, like, you know, really focused sort of thing. And, like, I don't – it's almost like we never – or at least I never took enough time while things were happening to, like, look at what was happening to kind of understand what the fuck was happening. I don't know. I know that sounds redundant, but it's um, it's almost like my eyes were – so ahead most of the time looking out for the things ahead that I wasn't really like sitting there being like, wow, this shit's like legit, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, But then, you know, in the same breath I'd be like literally in 2007 when I quit my job to be in a band full time, I was doing exactly what I wanted to do and by 2008 or 9 when I'm actually making some money on the road that I can bring home and start to maybe pay rent and get into things like this again maybe oh nine, two thousand ten, 2010 I should say <laughs> more like it but you know by that time I had already I had always said to myself that like the only thing I was looking to do for music was to not work a real job anymore and to be able to pay my bills. And there is truth to the fact that like, once I hit that point, like I felt like I was playing with house money after that. Um, And that's one of the reasons, like I think in the context of our band, I was always willing to take things a little slower and more carefully in the more punk rock approach because like, I was kind of all right with where everything was at, you know?
2: you were satisfied with the levels that you were kind of achieving.
3: I was, I didn't really know of much past that, but then, you know, every step of the way when it gets to a different step, you know, I was raised on rock and roll. Like my mom's this giant classic rock fan. My dad's this huge soul fan. And like, you know, like, as much as it hurts to sign to a major label and to do this and to do that and to have a producer tell you kind of what to play and this and that, when you like walk up and you're playing at fucking Wembley stadium and like, you know, I was, I grew up watching fucking queen live at Wembley cause that was one of my mom's favorite things like ever. And you know, that's one of the things I really appreciate about the way Brian saw the band like early on is the fact that like if I was totally running the show and I had continued to like run the show, then we maybe wouldn't have never gotten to those places. Cause I may have been too punk for some of the decisions that we were gonna make to like slow and scared and protective over what we had to kind of take like a leap of faith or to do something like that. Um, so, you know, we always, it, it was like a really healthy push and pull probably early in the band where I think I pulled us back to not make us go too fast and to make smart decisions. And I think, you know, Brian pushed us forward, which, you know, now the fact that I have like a wife and a kid in a house and I owe almost all of it to Gaslight anthem, you know I appreciate that it's
2: right, you know well it's I mean it's nice too, because you can obviously all that stuff fades to the background when, like you said, you are able to achieve these things that are are so just iconic to you personally, where it's like, yeah, getting up on Wembley Stadium it's like hey, that you can't replace that no matter how conflicted you may feel about it you like have to relish in that exact moment and be like, yeah. Holy shit. Like I can't believe this dumb punk band from New Jersey is up here. Like this exactly. is this is dumb but awesome.
3: <laughs> you know, and and luckily for me, like I've always been a person who has the ability to learn from other people's mistakes and like I watched a couple people in my life in my family and stuff really fuck up their lives from a matter of pride and from a matter of you know, not wanting to swallow a little shit. And I also saw it in bands. I saw it in bands I was friends with in bands that I knew that when I was a kid, I would have never assumed that these bands came home and worked. You know, I didn't know that that's what happened. And, you know, that's where it's almost hard to talk about it in retrospect because, you know, You're talking about two people. Brian and I made a bet with each other that if we ever sold 10,000 records, we were getting throat tattoos. Because to us, a band who sold 10,000 records was good forever. You know, like we thought that that band was like, oh, you're good. You sold that many records. You're like one of those bands. And now you can do it forever. And you know, we sold 10,000 records and like, I was still homeless. Alex was still homeless. Right. Brian was living with his in-laws, like, like just this, these scenarios that like, and then we're finding out that bands we thought were fucking huge and we thought were famous had to come home from tour and work and be fucking bartenders and be these things. And like, that's one of the things we were talking about earlier about the age. I do feel like, the idea like that we had seen a bunch of things prior gave us some wisdom to make our own decisions when it came. So I think as uncomfortable as some of these decisions made me, I think deep down, I really knew like that that's the right thing to do. And these days, you know, like I, we, we scratched the surface before, but the way I feel about the music industry and the way I feel about how the money is split up and how, who does the work and this and that, and that you're fucking nuts. If you don't take it, you know, you're crazy. Like, especially now that I understand publishing and I see the way that bands and artists and the people who write music and the bands who play on records get fucked time time and time and time and time again, not, not like that their lives are bad. I'm just talking about comparatively fucked to what other people are making. You know, and like I heard Jack White say years ago, like, why don't you just sell all your songs to commercials? Because they're going to fucking steal them anyway. And like at the time he said it, I'm like, ah, it's not really true. This and that. And then the more I pay attention to it, you know, you see a fucking truck commercial with something that you think is this iconic rock song. And it's actually some weird alternate cover of that song that some fucking schmo in a jingle house wrote probably got paid a couple hundred grand because the company that's running the commercial is in bed with the label who owns the publishing on the song. And the artist who wrote it in the first place, recorded it in the first place is completely cut out of the process probably. And like, there are times like that when I see that shit where I'm like, Jesus, like (laughs) why are you gonna hang on to something sanctimonious in music when there's nothing but capitalism under it you know um and that that's a hard pill to swallow for me it's something i just it really makes me averse to the whole thing in a lot of ways
2: yeah sure no i totally i i can i I can hear just the, the tone of your voice and how you're speaking about that um the, uh, I wanted to shift the focus kind of, uh, obviously away from, from all the band stuff and uh, focus on you, per you, per, you personally, you personally, personally, where I've really, um, I really enjoy what you do on, uh, going off track where the, uh, the sort of hosting thing that you step in and do occasionally, but, um, I enjoy Thanks. You're welcome. I enjoy the way that you uh, not only interact with people, um, but just the sort of, um, the commonalities that you try to find where it's like, you know, sometimes a, a person may not come from You know, they they may not be cut from the same cloth as you and I, but you're you're trying to get in there and obviously find out what makes them who they are. Um, it it seems it seems like that's obviously kind of part and parcel to everything that you're experiencing in the past, as far as like putting on shows and just like you know dealing with people outside of our community. Um, Was that something you had to kind of stretch yourself? Out to do more once, um, you know, once the band started to interact with people who obviously, like you said, aren't familiar with venues and like, don't know the difference between a concert and a show. Um, or was that kind of just you as a person in general?
3: I probably a mix of both, I guess, you know, um, like I was saying earlier, I, you know, I always felt I was never one of those people that like went into a room And was just like, you know, went into like a shell, you know, actually my first reaction in an environment like that, my nervousness actually leads to talking, you know, Um, like I'm one of those people who if an elephant's in the room, like I feel a lot better just like talking about the elephant and getting it out there, you know, Um, you come from like a history of New York Jews there's like nothing waspy about the way that they do things, you know, everything's on the table and it's loud and it's opinionated, you know? Um, And so, so I do think there is that natural element, but I think um, part, part of the thing that helps, like I really do. I'm just fascinated by people. I always have been, I, I see so many things about the world and history and and the way people move and people interact with each other. And um, so much of it doesn't make any sense to me. And it's bewildering to me, which makes me want to understand it more. And I really am fascinated in what motivates people, where people are from, and how that turns them into the things they are the people they come from and how that turns them into the things they are, what happens to people when they get together and how that changes their mindsets. And that stuff is really interesting to me. And and luckily for me through the years, I'd had so much exposure to so many different types of people just because of the way I grew up. I mean, at some point between the ages of seven and like 15, I had gone from, like, middle class to middle upper class to lower middle class, like, all within this span because of how fucked up my family got. And through those years and through shows and through traveling and sleeping on people's floors all over the place, going to different countries, which, I mean, that can expose your personality in so many ways. Um, You know, being put into a place where, you know, language turns into a barrier and you have to try and connect with people Um, so I feel like there was those challenges in my life that I was like fascinated to meet because they're all interesting to me. People are just interesting to me. I, when I hear of something like the Holocaust, it, it's like so bewildering to me that this can happen, that my first thought is like, okay, what's going on with the people, you know, what happened to these people? What happened to these people on an individual basis? How the fuck was this ever allowed to happen? You know? And, and I know that's like a large example for something as (laughs) mundane as going off track, the podcast I occasionally (laughs) guest host and the Holocaust, Jesus Christ! I can't believe it. Why didn't you stop me, Ray? I, no,
2: no, no, no. But I see your 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 point. <laughs> I see what you're trying to do, and I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you get there because I mean you're 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 obviously going off the the empathy, and you're just like how um, how the sort of human connection plays itself as a part of it. It's like yeah, you may not be similar to one person, but you can still find those commonalities. So no, that's I wasn't letting you hang yourself on a news, my friend. I knew <laughs> where you were going for.
3: It's right. right. I'm Jewish, man. I'm allowed to just drop Holocaust references. It's like <laughs> one of the upsides
1: Hol- to being Holocaust, Jewish.
3: Totally, Holocaust I can't say the N word, but I can drop the H bomb whenever I want. Like that's, that's how it works. I love it. Sorry. Um, I feel no. bad for you white guys. Like you just, you can't, you can't. do it. You nah, know, man, it's,
2: it's un- un- uncharted waters. We're not, I would, I would,
3: tell you you're incredibly insensitive
2: for the same comment. (laughs) Right. I Um, would never, I would never make the correlation. No, Um, but,
3: but yeah. So, and, and actually, you know, it's funny you say that because that stuff with the podcasts has turned into something very similar to like doing shows and playing music for me, which is something I do a lot of work for that. I really, really like a lot and it doesn't feel like work it just feels like interesting and fun and kind of useful and cool and i just like it uh, it's something i'd actually love to do like more for sure
2: right now i i could tell there's an enjoyment there um and uh i wanted to mention i'd be remiss if i didn't and i know i hinted at it earlier the uh your love for basketball is is real in the sense of like, you're not just totally, you're not just this guy. Who's like, yo, like, yeah, I watch a game here, here too. It's like, you're, you're in it. Um, is that, is that also kind of a a side of your life that you would love to explore in regards to, you know, I mean, not even say like a career standpoint, but like, you know, if ESPN were to be like, Hey Benny, how about would you uh, do this uh, blog on the NBA or whatever? Um, is that something that you would be you know totally open to and interested in?
3: Yeah, like a 100,000% okay. I would be interested in that. Yeah, It's it would be like the coolest shit ever. It would be like, yeah, someone hiring you to talk about sports. Like especially since sports through the years and especially in the internet age, sports has become like my ultimate distraction. You know, it's like especially the stats and the fantasy stuff and things like that. It's like literally like a safe place for my head to go. Um and, and I, I love sports like that. They're so like comforting in that way, you know? Cause it's all to me, like, it's so, it's so often just theater. And it's so often, if you view it as entertainment and you view what you're doing as like a love for the game rather than, you know, that's something that's changed in me over the years. Like the more and more I'm into sports, you know, I love my teams and I'll always support my teams, but like. I'm not buying fucking jerseys anymore and I'm not doing shit like that. And I would never in a thousand years get into a fucking fight with someone at a game about a team or something like that because like, you know, not for nothing. These guys are fucking going to dinner with each other after the game. They're all millionaires. They're all friends like they don't have the same kind of shit at stake as like even the fans do, I think they take it to like a level. I, I've I've been going to Giants games since I was a little kid. My my we had a family friend who had Giant season tickets. I don't know if if you you know know from the West Coast, but the Giants have been sold out for oh yeah my forever. entire life. You know for you know thirty five years since I've been around, they've been sold out. And to become a Giant season ticket holder, you go on a waiting list. That's you know a mile long and it takes forever. And we luckily had a friend who sold us two games a year when I was a kid. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen these like horribly embarrassing situations with people fighting and getting into problems at games about, you know, something like that. And I just won't do that because I have a love for the game now, you know, like I'm a Nets season ticket holder. I love basketball one of my greatest goals in life was to get basketball season tickets and I'm a net season ticket holder. And if the nets get the shit kicked out of them by the Oklahoma city thunder and I get to watch two of the best athletes in the world, fucking pound on the nets and play beautiful basketball. I'm actually okay with it. Like it's all right.
2: You know, love of the game. Right.
3: Yeah. Like I just watched Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant, like fucking give me a ballet out there. Like it was awesome. (laughs) Totally you know, and, and I, I won't get mad about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and especially for basketball and, and I'm a big college basketball fan too. So a lot of times often a team with just a, a conglomeration of college guys, I really liked winds up together on a pro team and I kind of have a soft spot for that pro team just cause I like those guys, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like my love, my love for hoops is proper real. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, well, it's... I
2: like I the, the reason I bring it up is because I I, I like when the because the, there's obviously as you well know that really fine line where you know punk and hardcore and independent music has that line drawn where it's like you can't like sports like obviously that mm. tone has shifted over the years um, you know I'll, I'll do in part to ten yard fight. I'll, I'll jump right <laughs> I mean, right. to the it. <laughs> but I, I just like it when it's like, you know, a person that is involved in a subculture is like is, you know, unapologetic about their love for this thing that is obviously so, you know, so mainstream and commoditized that it's like, well, no, but I, I just like it because like you said, the the love of the game, it's it's just awesome.
3: Yeah. I think I I suffered from that when I was a little younger. Um where you know you weren't supposed to like sports and i was probably less into sports as a result uh yeah i mean definitely the confidence i have in being myself at 35 years old and not succumbing to the pressures of the scene and things like that i mean i can talk really cavalier about it now but i was succumbed to those pressures you know (laughs) just like everyone uh so I actually, an interesting thing happened to me. i I really love statistics, um, to the point that I like, I buy an almanac every year and I like just checking out the numbers and the you stats eat, of the world right. and populations. Mm-hmm. And like, I like seeing things like that. Um, and it's, it's fun for me. And, uh, there was something about, um, the advent of sports going online and fantasy that made, like, the statistical aspect of it so much easier to investigate and so much more fun that I think that's part of, like, my obsession and the reason it got so much stronger in the last, like, 10 or 15 years because because of that. Like, I'm really – I'm so into – I don't know what it is about the accumulation of statistics that really gives me a heart on but it does but <laughs> you
2: just you really really want to go to the Sloan conference.
3: I'm a fucking nerd, man, straight right? up. Like that's, with that that's shit.
2: Awesome.
3: Like even a cool example of it. Well, not cool. Um, <laughs> cool for you. <laughs> cool for like a nerd like, you know, like right. Sonabank, like, ah, that's great. But right. um, when I was a kid, I really loved baseball and I loved the Yankees. And every Sunday, my dad would get the New York Times delivered to our house. And the Sunday New York Times used to have a full-page insert spread of every team's uh, statistics um, in baseball. And, you know, one side would be American League, one side would be National League. And I would wait for the Sunday New York Times to come. And I would like rush to the table with it, and I would spend the better part of Sunday morning and afternoon doing my own ranking systems, where I would take, you know, with my pen, I would take the top twenty um, uh, in each statistical category and add up for a final number and make my final list of the best players in baseball based on the statistics. And I did this on Sunday by myself. And loving fucking every second of it, you know, like I wasn't, no one was telling me to do this. Like I probably actually should have been out playing with kids or something. I would have been a better athlete, but, um, but yeah, I was into that, you know, I don't know what it is. And that's kind of that type of uh, obsession with the stats has like definitely gotten so much more prevalent and almost more fun with the internet and with like everything how easy it is and and how the actual weekly accumulation of stats actually means something now because of fantasy. So that's,
2: yeah, it's just, it's deepening your obsession. Yeah, Um, it is. The, uh, the last thing I want to hit on before I let you go was the, um, uh, just cause you mentioned it to me over email in regards to you obviously being a father now, um, and having this, uh, cause I, I, I'm the same exact age as you. I have a, he'll be five next month. And so I just find it interesting, um, evolution of people like you and I who have been involved in, you know, this weird subculture for, you know, uh, longer than most people should, um, and the idea of like having a child. Um, so obviously you being fresh off, like, you know, the the, the idea of right. being a father, um, you know, how's that all kind of, uh, you know, sitting in your head where it's like, oh, my gosh, like, of course, you can go to the cliches of like, oh, my God, it's the most beautiful thing ever and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, we all know right. that. But, um, you know, how, how's it kind of uh, sitting with you and like, what sort of, uh, just because like you mentioned before, you are an anxious person, um, <laughs> you know, are these, are, are those fears, uh, is the anxiety coming up because you're like, oh, I have to like take care of the, is it a, he or she, sorry, I should. It's he, it's he, okay. oh, um, son. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's tricky,
3: you know, it's like a nuanced thing because, you know, as much as certain things will make me more anxious, the idea that I don't want to make my child anxious by being anxious makes me want to be less anxious. Um, So there's almost like there are these like natural fears and insecurities that are coming up, but they're kind of being quickly met with the fact that like I do not want to do that to a fucking kid. So even if I'm feeling it, I'm not going to let them see it, you know? And You know, I think in that way, I'm already finding some like extra strength, like through him, you know, where I'm finding a part of myself that's like, I guess an example of it is this, like I I have kind of like a tendency, I'm like a bit of a food addict, you know, it was like the way I grew up and um, it's really hard for me to just like eat well and eat well consistently and not have things that are bad for me. And part of that comes from the fact that, like, I've sort of been in a day-to-day mindset for, like, most of my life. I'm not usually looking very far back in the past and not looking too far of my immediate goals in the future. And the idea of this, like, long, fruitful life and family and these things, honestly, like, it didn't really fucking occur to me. Um And I was focused on something else, you know, like music and like this goal of achieving what I wanted to achieve through music has been like my end all be all for so long that I kind of got in this mindset. And just the other day, I was like coming home from something. I had to stop at an ATM. I was away from my wife, who's the one who keeps me super healthy at home. Uh, And I was like, I'll just have fucking Reese's cup while I'm right here, you know. And, and I'm like thinking about it. And the thing that crossed my head really fast was like, shit, like this Reese's cup, I know is filled with disgusting shit, shit that I would never want to put in my body. If they're separate from each other, shit, that's probably going to give me cancer. It's going to make me fatter. It's going to make me have the potential to have a fucking heart attack faster. And I'm like, now I got to fucking stay alive for like a while. Like I have to, do this for somebody else. I have to like not eat this Reese's so I can actually see him fucking graduate high school or like something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's like something that like just has never sank in with me. This idea that I need to like be like this, this image for somebody else because, you know, I'm this like model for them, which is bizarre for me. And this idea that like, Somebody actually has a vested interest in the fact that I stay alive another 20 years. You know, things like that. I know it sounds morbid and odd, but they are things that just, I don't know, didn't fucking occur to me. And they're things that I'm thinking about a lot now. So it's definitely – yeah, I mean it's definitely for somebody – it's a, it's a mind fuck in a lot of ways, you know. And like you said, take all the trite stuff out of it, you know. Of course, like I look at him and he smiles and my heart melts and it's great, you know. It's, it's beautiful. But yeah, there are these definitely interesting elements um, about it. Uh, sometimes I feel like maybe I don't have enough love for myself to do what I need to do to live a happy, healthy life. But maybe I have enough love for someone else to do
2: it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You want to, yeah. You want to pass that along. Cause obviously it's like the idea that, um, yeah. Cause I, I, I very much was like you where it's like, I don't want to turn into that, you know, schlubby fat dad. Like I don't want to be that guy that's like wheezing as he's running around the, the park with his kids. <laughs> right. I, mean, I I definitely was a dick and I lost a lot of weight when my wife was pregnant and she was like, I hate you. When I want to say <laughs> a lot. I mean, I'm talking about like 15 pounds, but sure. none, nonetheless, it's like, I really do think that has a connection to, um, you know, the, like I said, the weird subculture we're in, or maybe I'm just reading too far into it, but it's like that fact of like pushing against the conventions that uh, have been laid before you. Cause obviously, you know, you're, you're supposed to hit a certain age and then it's fine to have a dad bod and not care and whatever, like all these things add up in my head where I'm like, I'm going to rebel against that shit. And I think the only thing that I can ever connect it to is like, Oh yeah. It's because like exactly what you're saying, where it's like, I don't need to put the shit in my body. Cause I need to live where it's like, right. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if other people have that thought. They're just like, Oh, actually, instead of one, I'll have four. Like,
3: <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's all about, you know, and that's where the stats thing comes into play. Like right. to me, it's is an odds game, you know, like, right. you know, I could get hit in the head by scaffolding, walking home, and that Reese's didn't fucking matter at all. But, like, you know, I like to play the odds. And, you know, if you don't eat the Reese's, you're just making your numbers go up. Like, you know, you're not guaranteeing anything. I'm not, like, thinking I have the end-all be-all cure to not die. Um, but, you know, and my father used to say something when I was younger. He's like, he's like you know what? He's like, you know, two things you can do to drastically increase your chances to live a long life i'm like what he's like don't smoke and wear a seatbelt and so you know he always used to say it and i was like yeah yeah i know don't smoke and wear a seatbelt and now i'm like i mean statistically if you take two things that are actually in your power that can increase your odds to live long those are two things that you should probably do you know yeah, so, control it just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean as much as you can, you know, yeah, like without course. without going too crazy, you know? Totally. So well,
1: hey, bang, I'm sorry.
3: I, I'm sorry, I, I drank like a lot of coffee. I haven't done an interview in a while. I I, I feel like are... I rambled through like every nope. question you asked me without potentially even answering the question.
2: No, this was this was absolutely perfect. I think uh, oh, okay. No, dude, you did you did a great <laughs> job. I was just gonna thank you for, for doing this because it was uh I, Uh, these are the sort of conversations i like to have with people it's definitely not like you know question answer like how did you get the band name gaslight anthem let's talk about bottom feeder it's like all that shit is is (laughs) out there all that stuff just it's more so focusing on you as an individual so hearing your thoughts contextualized is uh is important so basically a long way of saying it thank you benny i appreciate it
3: yeah thank you thanks for having me it was fun
2: new best friend? I mean he kind of is with me. So um yeah, no big deal, right? Another drummer of a very famous rock band that has played with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Anyways, I'm just kidding. But uh yeah, so and plus the Gaslight anthem like they haven't released a bad record i don't know if you personally pay attention to what they're doing but i've loved the band ever since sink or swim which was their first lp and then the 59 sound i was obsessed with for a good six months that was all that i listened to and you know what i think i'm gonna put that on right after i'm done recording this because that record is so damn good but anyways thank you very much benny and thank you for your persistence in uh downloading skype and everything else that i forced you to do that you hadn't done in quite some time So uh, the guest next week is a old friend of mine and a person who has led a very, very interesting life. His name is Matt Johnson. He used to sing for a band called Ignite the Will, and he also played in a band called Preacher Gone to Texas. And and arguably, both of those bands, you probably are – they're not household names, so you probably don't know them. But he has worked – he's worked in the Pentagon, all right? He's written a book. He's an extremely interesting guy, and his stories uh, are incredible, and that's why I wanted him on the show. So next week, if you love stories, just just dive in, right? Anyways, uh, visit the show's website, 100wordspodcast.com. Email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And uh, the music, as always for this show, is by Cloud Kicker, even though I haven't said that in quite some time. But some of you ask an email, and I respond. So there, Cloud Kicker, that's who does the music. And yes, so next week, I will talk to you then. And please be safe, everybody.
4: You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference.